Trigger warning, the following content is graphic in nature. Proceed with caution. Welcome back to the Ghastly Report. And this episode is on the Velisca Axe Murders in Velisca, Iowa. And we're going to dive deep into this on the incident, the night before the incident, and all the theories and suspects that tie into this case. And this case is still a cold case. But before we get into that, let me introduce my infamous co-host. Infamous, huh? Steph. I, I wanted to say something else, but I just couldn't think of something on the quick fly, so... <laughs> I went with just that one again. So how all you doing, right. Steph? I'm doing all right. How are you? <laughs> good, good, good. I'm good. I'm good. By the way, happy Thanksgiving to everybody out there. Before we end this podcast, we will tell you that again. But this is the episode right before Thanksgiving. So yes, it is. We hope happy everybody has day. a great turkey day. Yep. Anyway. Need to uh, add a little real, gobble in there. Real quick, we want to, uh, I want to say thank you to Marie again. She emailed us back and she's showing so much support and she loves our podcast. And she gave us some ideas on some uh, stories in Fort Wayne, saying that Fort Wayne was built on top of Indian burial, ground, burial grounds. So we're going to yeah, take that's a look gonna into that. be an interesting thing. Yeah. So we're going to take a look into that. But yes. Just want to say thank you, Marie. And what's up? Yes, thank you. All right, so the Velisca Axe Murders. Velisca, Iowa. This is... This involves... This case is pretty... Gruesome. Brutal. Yeah. I'd go with gruesome. It involves children, again, but also the, the parents as well. But we're going to get into the depths and the details of it. But here's like a little intro for you. So sometime around midnight between Sunday, June 9th and Monday, June 10th of 1912, two adults and six children between the ages of five and 12 were bludgeoned to death in a single home in Villisca, Iowa. The murder spawned nearly 10 years of investigations, repeated grand jury hearings, a spectacular slander suit and murder trial, and numerous minor lit litigations and trials. This crime made and broke political careers. It remains unsolved. And it says political careers, but we actually dive into one particular person that it ruined his political career because it states that he was almost kind of in competition with the one of the main uh, victims. Yeah, so, and he was uh, also a state senator. Yeah, that too. So on Sunday evening, June 9th, 1912, Josiah Joe Moore and his wife Sarah took their four kids, Herman, 11, Catherine, Catherine, 10, Boyd, 7, and Paul, 5, to the Children's Day service at the Presbyterian Church they attended. Neighbors Lena Stillinger, 12, and Ina Stillinger, 8, also attended with the family as they were spending the night with them. The Children's Day service was an end-of-the-year Sunday school program that Sarah Moore was a co-director of, and her children performed little speeches and recitations along with other Sunday school members. The service ended with a social mingling that lasted until at least 9.30 p.m. 
when parishioner slept. The family walked three blocks to their home, ended their night with milk and cookies, and then they all went to bed. Sometime after midnight, the killer or killers picked up Joe's axe from the backyard, entered the house, and bludgeoned all eight of its occupants to death. By 7.30 a.m. on June 10th, Mary Peckham, an elderly neighbor, became concerned that the Moore house seemed quiet and deserted. She called Joe's brother, Ross, a local druggist, to check on them. He arrived by 8 a.m. and cautiously inspected the downstairs, finding two figures covered with a sheet in the back bedroom and blood on the bedstead. Ross quickly left the crime scene and called Joe's hardware store, telling employee Ed Seeley to notify Marshal Hank Horton that something terrible had happened. Hank arrived by 8.30 a.m. and after going through the home, uh, came out and told Ross that he found somebody murdered in every bed. The partially cleaned murder weapon was left leaning against the south wall of the downstairs bedroom where the visiting Sillinger girls were found. I think so far this is the first case we were actually talking about when someone entered the house before police did. Noticed there was a murder, but didn't check the rest of the house. He quickly left and got help. Yeah, he knew something was wrong and so he left. That's a you know that's that's a big difference there because normally we find people that are actually like, or we read cases where they enter the house or they're there and they're starting to just go throughout the whole house, contaminating evidence and all that stuff. So they were careful up until the end of it. Very true. Very true. The killer had added some strange touches to the crime scene. One being a four-pound piece of slab bacon and a keychain found leaning against the wall next to the axe. The oil lamp in the kitchen was set to burn extremely low so as to cause enough light to see, but not to disturb. On the kitchen table was a plate of uneaten food and a bowl of bloody water, which they determined was where the killer washed their hands before leaving. Dressers were gone through and sheets were placed in the mirrors and windows. All the victims were found in their beds, the parents' heads covered in sheets, and the children covered in clothing, and all had their skulls battered 20 to 30 times with the blunt end of the axe. And also, it, before I go any further with this, it, they all said the blunt end of the axe. Actually, there was still, Mr. Moore was the only one that was actually beaten with the blade of the axe. Everybody else was, everybody else was beaten with the back end of the axe. The ceiling in the parents' bedroom and the children's room upstairs showed gouge marks made from the upswing of the axe. The police determined that the Moore parents had been murdered first. The faces of all the victims were reduced to nothing but bloody pulp. And this 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 house is a tourist attraction now, so you can actually see pictures of the inside of the house and all the rooms. It's a very, very small house. Because back then in the early 1900s, houses weren't very huge. They were made especially for, you know, the blue collar family or what you call them, you know? So the, the rooms were small. And if you look at the parents room, the bed is basically up against the corner. And I think the room has like a slanted ceiling pretty much. So mm -hmm. if you're really tall swinging an ax, you're going to hit the ceiling. So apparently this person had to have been shorter or knew to avoid this slanted ceiling. Because, I mean, like I said, when you go look at the picture, you can definitely tell that this room is small. Yeah. So the fact that he killed two adults in this room without the other one waking up. That's that's the surprising part. And he did hit the ceiling, so... He hit the wall behind him. The gouge marks were on the wall. Oh, I thought they were on the ceiling. In the picture, it shows 
the wall. One of them shows the wall behind it, or it's oh. really on the side of the bed. Um, he could have hit the ceiling in some of the other rooms, but I know in the parents' room, it was it, the gouge mark was on the wall. Mm. Yeah, he had to have hit him. He had to one and then one because otherwise the other would have woke up and and then yeah, and then just continue on both of them. Lena Stillinger was found with her nightgown pushed up, leaving her exposed, but doctors concluded she had not been sexually abused. She also had a blood stain on her knee and an alleged defensive wound on her arm. Uh, by the time the police, the coroner, a minister, and several doctors had thoroughly gone through the crime scene, word of the vicious crime had sped, uh, spread to the crowd outside the home. Oh, and the crowd outside the home had grown. Officials advised the bystanders to stay out of the home, but as soon as they left, at least 100 people traipsed through the property, one of them even taking a fragment of Joe's skull as a keepsake. Due to the town people's contaminating the home, the bloodhounds that were brought in were unable to help find the perpetrator. We're all curious. We're humans. We're curious. So they're going to go through the house, grab keepsakes for souvenirs. That's a hell of a keepsake, but okay. <laughs> it is. It is a really hell of a keepsake. But the fact that you almost needed to have someone on watch 24-7 of the house of the crime scene before, once before until the investigation was over. Because you had that. Well, by the time they tramp through the whole house, it doesn't even matter. They've Yeah. But back then too, they weren't really collected evidence like they do now because they don't do DNA ana analysis and all that. So it's yeah. basically for the bloodhounds to sniff. But, yeah. But who's to say that had they not touched the crime scene that the bloodhounds couldn't have found the person? Well, it's just also say we don't know the what they yeah, but we don't know what they really touched. Yeah. I still think a bloodhound could have picked up something. Something. The Moore Cylinder Funeral Service were held in Valeska Town Square on June 12, 1912, with thousands in attendance. Natural, National Guardsmen blocked the streets as the hearse moved towards the firehouse where the eight victims laid. Their caskets, not on display during the funeral, were later carried on several wagons to the Valeska Cemetery for burial. The funeral procession, procession was 50 carriages long. That's a big funeral. Yeah, it is. I mean, you do have eight victims. Most of them six kids, being children. But, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> but it's and still, I mean, still they were known through the, the community. They yeah. Churches for sure. So everybody like when you go to church, you know, pretty much everybody in the community. Of course, I don't know if more like a lot of the, the Morris family was there, but you have the the the, uh, the Stillinger family. All of them there too, but I mean, for a crime this gruesome to happen in a small town, of course, everybody's going to be there. That is also true. All right, so that was the timeline of the murder, what happened, and in what happened afterwards, uh, like right after. Now we're going to get into like the investigating part of it, the investigating part of it, where all the suspects, theories, and it gets pretty interesting. Few suspects were named over time, though none panned out. The first was Frank Jones, a local businessman and state senator who had been in competition with Moore. He was a former employee of Joe's. There was a rumor that Joe was having an affair with Jones's daughter-in-law, though the reports were baseless. The townspeople insist that the Moores and Jones harbored a deep hatred for each other, though no one admitted it was bad enough to spark a murder. Though Jones was never formally charged with any involvement in the murder, he became the subject, subject of a grand jury investigation and prolonged campaign to prove his guilt, which destroyed his political career. 
it probably destroyed his business career too. Oh, I'm sure. Many people believed he used his considerable influence to have the case against him squashed. In political careers, that was always the case. Everybody's, you know, they always have corrupt politics and they can find ways to get things changed. And Yeah. But I, I mean, what people don't take into a f- account, like they, they feel he, f- he used his influence to have it, you know, squashed. But at the same time, the allegations are enough to destroy his career. So what would it's, it's done regardless. Just yeah. But at least he's not sitting in jail. So that's, that's the big True. thing out of that. Even though he has no future, he probably can still do something in business, but his political career was done because he was yeah, a face. More or less. And, you know, whenever you're a face like that and you have something bad rep gets put on you, that's it. You're, it's kind of like pfft, over with. Few people believe that Jones, who was 57 at the time, was physically able to handle the gruesome task, while others claim he hired someone. James Wilkerson, a renowned investigator with the Burns Detective Agency, announced in 1916 that Jones had hired a killer by the name of William Mansfield to murder the family. Wilkerson argued that Mansfield was the right sort of man for the job, as in 1914, he was the chief suspect in the axe murders of his wife and her parents and his own child in Blue Island, Illinois. Unfortunately for Wilkerson, Mansfield turned out to have a cast iron alibi for the killings. Payroll records have showed that he had been working several hundred miles away in Illinois at the time of the murders. Even you're at the age of 57, but you're swinging that axe 20 to 30 times on a total of eight victims. You're going to be dog tired. Like if he doesn't give himself a stroke first. That's a, that's a lot for an older gentleman of that age. Yeah, he may it says that he was physically able to. Of course, Back then, you know, people were still working full-time hard labor jobs at that age. Yeah. So, you know, it does, it does I mean, I'm just saying, but like, you got to think. Swinging the axe 20, 30 times per person, that's that's a lot. That's that's a lot of... Realistically, so that pers- yeah. If he, now, if it, he it, had just, done it, he would have hired somebody. True, but like, I, you also got to think too, like, okay, well, did, did this person go through the house and hit each person one time to kill them. And then he went back and just had his fun, you know, like, cause you got to think you're swinging an ax. You got to be quiet to not wake anybody up. House is super small. Yeah. Echoes a lot. It's wooden house off the ground, you know? So it's, uh, it's just, it's, it's, fascinating to know that with these crimes of how people were able to do them and get away with it without being even caught or even seen or heard when you're hitting an axe and you're hitting the wall because you know you got gouge marks on the wall so it's like it's just it's people slept crazy. through that <laughs> yeah it's crazy so and apparently he killed the parents first they were upstairs so the guy hit the wall unless, like I said, he went through and hit each person one time first yeah, or a couple times. I don't know. But it's just very crazy to see like how something of this nature is just gets kind of like not even solved because of certain, you know, it's just crazy. The more realistic suspect, though, was Reverend Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly, the little preacher, as they called him. Reverend Kelly was an English immigrant who had came to America with his wife and preached at a Methodist church, preached at Methodist churches across North Dakota, Minnesota, Kansas, and Iowa. 
He'd been assigned as a visiting minister to several small communities north of Villisca, where he developed a reputation for odd behavior, such as sending obscene material through the mail, as well as being labeled a sexual deviant who had been caught peering into windows. At one point, he had taken out an advertisement for a secretary, part of whose duties would include posing. The one woman who answered the ad got back a letter so pornographic that the judge refused to allow its readings in court. But part of it said she would be required to type in the nude. This conviction got him locked up in a hospital for the criminally insane and made his actions after the Villisca murders more suspicious. How did that guy even become a minister? Or how was he able to stay a minister when he had reports of obscene gestures and reputations and all that stuff? It's Because it was a different time back then. He was a man yes. of God. I, I guess he was able to abuse that a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of people did back then. Supposedly at 5.19 a.m. the morning after the murders, the Reverend left Villisca via train and allegedly told fellow travelers there were eight dead souls back in Villisca, Iowa, butchered in their beds while they slept. The bodies hadn't been discovered yet. Kelly had arrived in Villisca for the first time that Sunday morning, attended the Sunday school performance, and left that Monday. He later came back and impersonated an investigator with Scotland Yard and toured the house with other investigators. That right there, <clears throat> we've read this thing a couple times, and that really stands out to me because Scotland Yard is in a different country. Yep. So he came to the to crime scene and toured the, the house with the investigators and impersonated as a Scotland Yard. Now, the only logical reasoning I could think of is that the Jack the Ripper murders, which were in the late 1800s, around 1880s, happened. And Scotland Yard were the big investigators for it. So for this man to think to the level of to impersonate a Scotland Yard, to tie into the fact that Scotland Yard has dealt with crime scenes of brutal nature. Yeah. To, and then to come into this house and impersonate a Scotland Yard investigator blows my mind because he's kind of mentally ill, but he's still smart enough to do that. Yeah. I, I mean, but his, his timeline of being there, he arrives Sunday morning. Went to that that church performance where the Moors and the two little other girl, the neighbor girls, the Stillinger girls were there, mm-hmm. and then he left Monday morning on the train, telling people there were dead, eight dead souls back in Villisca before they were even discovered. Yep, he was there just long enough. But we're going to show you how he gets acquitted, even though he was would particularly be the prime suspect. But his mental health plays in the fact of it as being like, well, he could just be saying it could be just very coincidental that he said eight people. Police liked Kelly for murders from for the murders for multiple reasons. One being he was left handed and the blood spatter had indicated a left handed assailant. And second, a dry cleaner from a nearby town received bloody clothes from Kelly days after the murders. We're also going to add the fact that he was just over five foot tall. A uh, grand jury indicted Kelly for Lena Stillinger's murders, uh, murder, and he was interrogated through the summer of 1917 while in jail awaiting trial. On August 31st at 7 a.m., Kelly signed a confession to the murder saying, God had whispered to him, suffer the children to come unto me. He stated in his confession, I killed the children upstairs first. 
and the children downstairs last. I knew God wanted me to do it this way. Slay utterly come, came to my mind, and I picked up the axe, went into the house, and killed them. He later recanted his confession during trial, stating police brutality as the cause of his confession, and the case went to jury on September 26th. The jury deadlocked at 11 to 1 for acquittal. A second jury was immediately brought in, but Kelly was acquitted in November. So his confession doesn't add up either. No, it Well, first, he gets indicted for just Lena, which Lena was the one that showed defensive mark, you know, markings on her arm because of being in defense. Yeah. And also her now nightgown was raised up, but there was no signs of sexual abuse. So it's it's really weird that he was only indicted for just that one. Just the for the ones. one out of all of them. But he says in his confession, he killed the children upstairs first and then the children downstairs last. I can see how this plays hand in hand a little bit because the parents were originally said that they were killed first. Yeah. But he's just talking about killing the children. He's not even talking about killing. Yeah. To him, the, the, parents. the parents didn't count. They were just there. Yeah. And it still doesn't, it still doesn't add up to me. The way they quoted him just to me, I mean, how, how would he get that descriptive as how his motive under police brutality, he would have just said, I did it. That's it. It's done. But he got descripted as he said, God told him to do it. Well, that goes also into, uh, you know, throughout the years when people start saying that God told him to do it, because uh, uh, the guy that killed Jeffrey Dahmer in prison, he did the same thing. He actually said he spoke to God and God told him that, yes, do my do my uh, my work by your hands type thing in. So he killed Jeffrey Dahmer. So people who throughout the years in the mental health or mental illness status, people who say that they God talked to them and told them to do this, they like quickly claim that, okay, they're mentally insane or mentally ill. Right, which would make sense. But my point is that he threw that out as his confession. He did it because of this. If it had been police brutality, if the if they had made him confess, that wouldn't have been his reason for doing it. He would have yeah. been less descriptive. Oh, that wasn't very descriptive either. You got to think too. Kind of. No, oh, okay. <laughs> descriptive to me is how he did it. And the how, and he, the why. And, he may have done you know, that for all we know. That's just what we have for. Oh, well, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True, well, true. he was quoted. But that's what my what I'm saying. If he had, if the cops had coerced him to say something, had, had gotten him to confess, he wouldn't have used the religious angle. That's a personal excuse. What if he actually did do it and he only confessed because the police were beating him to confess? And what he did was he later recanted saying like, well, they beat me up and made me say it to try and get that. To get away from it. To get the jury to be like, oh, I feel bad for him. Yeah, poor man of God. Yeah, possible. It's a big what if. That is a big what if. Okay, so now we're on to the theory of a possible serial killer. Of course, back then, early 1900s, serial killer was not ever known of. It went until like the 1960s, 70s before serial killer terminology was ever brought up. So this is, of course, this information we're getting is written years later after you know the word serial killer came to be but 
if you look at it, anybody that's killed three or more people, yes, it's classified as a serial killer. Because, and you were about to state the information here of why they think it's possible per one person going around doing this. Soon, reports of similar crimes happening throughout the country began to pop up. In 1911 and 1912, a bizarre chain of axe murders seemed to suggest that a transit serial killer was at work. A researcher named Beth Klingensmith had suggested that as many as 10 incidents had occurred close to railway tracks, but in locations as far apart as Rainier, Washington and Monmouth, Illinois, forming part of a chain, and in some cases that there were striking similarities to the Valeska crimes. The pattern first pointed out in 1913 by Special Agent Matthew McClary of the Justice Department's Bureau of Investigation began with the murder of a family of six in Colorado Springs in September 1911 and continued with two more incidents in Monmouth, Illinois, and Ellsworth, Kansas, where the murder weapon was actually a pipe. Three people died in the first one, five in the next, and two more in Paola, Kansas where someone murdered Roland Hudson and his unfaithful wife just four days before the Villisca killings. As far as McClary was concerned, the slaughter culminated in December 1912 with the brutal murder of Mary Wilson and her daughter Georgia Moore in Columbia, Missouri. His theory was that Henry Lee Moore, Georgia's son and a convict with a history, was responsible for all the deaths. Henry Lee Moore was not a likely suspect in the Valeska killings as the killings of his mother was financially motivated and he had no logical ties to the other murders. When analyzing the pattern of the murders, the possibility of a serial killer does look like an option and not just because of because most of the murders were done with an axe. All the victims died in their sleep, but they could have just been due to the choice of weapon, an axe being nearly useless with a mobile target. In eight of the 10 cases, the murder weapon was found abandoned at the scene of the crime. In as many as seven, there were railway, near, uh, railway lines nearby. In three, including the Valeska murders, the murders took place on a Sunday night. Four of the cases, Paula, Valeska, Rainier, and a solitary murder that took place in Mount Pleasant, Iowa, featured killers who covered their victims' faces. Three murderers had washed at the scene, and at least five of the killers had lingered in the murder house. The most compelling part of, of all is the two other homes that had the victims in Ellsworth and Paola murders had been lit by lamps in which the chimney had been laid aside and the wick bent down just like at the Moore's home. So it's crazy to get all these these murders, murder places, and they all some way tie into each other because some of them have similar things. So like some of them had where you know, the faces were covered and the, you know, the mirrors and windows were covered. Some of them had, you know, the ax being left there. Some of them, few of them had where a railway was nearby. You know, you have one murder that actually had a lead pipe. So it's crazy to see, like you have this huge span of between 1911 or yeah, 1911 to 1912 of murders of the same, even though everything was different, the murder was still the same. They and all that's got the killed. Thing. They weren't at, all different, slept. though. It almost seemed like it was a crime of like the weapons that they chose. Axe was just handy because everybody had one. So what happens if you just happen to find a couple of houses that they, they couldn't find the axe? So they grabbed whatever they could, and that hence yeah. the pipe. Yep. You know, everything else died in was the same. Yeah. Yeah. They all died in the sleep, but the other stuff was is either coincidental or 
you know, or it's just what was there. Yeah. So it's, it's, doesn't mean that it could be one person. No, it could be a couple. It could be, I think there's two. I think, sure. yeah. I honestly think there was two because if you think about it with these houses, th- these weren't small families. And I highly doubt one person could build through that entire house, killing everybody by themselves. I just don't yeah, see Yeah, but it. if you're swinging it 20 to 30 times, that's a lot of swinging. That too. But I still think that, you know, it, they're all tied in some kind of way. Yeah. And, you know, if we go back to my thought on the reverend being the killer, he was married. So accomplice. Yeah. Very true. The cases have never been proven to be linked, but for sure they had a lot in common. Like the Paula murders, which had a lot of similarities with Velisca. In both cases, odd incidents occurred the same night that suggests the killer may have attempted to strike twice. Velisca at 2.10 a.m. on the night of the murder, telephone operator Xenia Delini heard strange footsteps approaching up the stairs and someone attempting to open her locked door. Similarly, in Paula, a second family was awakened in the night, in the dead of the night, by a sound that turned out to be a lamp chimney falling to the floor. The occupants of that house were in time to see an unknown man escaping through a window. So it's it is safe to say that those two, Xenia and the other family, were about to be victims of a of a murderer who was actually doing this on a spree in a sense. Because tempting to open a locked door in the middle of the night and then the other one about the chimney laying or messing with the chimney, the lamp. Because that was the main thing in some of the murders where the the lamp was dimmed just low enough to see, but not enough to be a disturbance. Right. Because they they didn't want him to wake up. It's easier to subdue a victim if they're sleeping. So... The fact that they were both awake kind of disturbed their plan. And the occupants of that house were about the lamp. They were actually able to see a, a man escaping from the window. So yep. someone had eyes on them, just not enough to explain identify. who it is or identify yeah. details. Yeah. One of the spookiest of all the similarities was the strange behavior of the unknown murder of William Showman, his wife Pauline, and the three children in Ellsworth, Kansas, in October of 1911. In the Ellsworth case, not only was a chimneyless lamp used to light up the murder scene, but a pile of clothing had been placed over the showman's telephone. It has been suggested that the perpetrator covered the phone just like they covered their victims' faces, mirrors, and windows because he feared that his dead victims were somehow still aware of his presence the face of the phone being another victim in this case. The Valeska case eventually ran cold and the house was boarded up. No sale was ever attempted and no changes were ever made. Now the house is a tourist attraction. Yeah. And I remember we talked about this before when you were saying the phones back then looked like they actually had like a face. So this person is covering up any kind of face in the house. Yeah. Because of superstitious Mm -hmm. reasoning. Uh, And apparently like, you know, when you're covering up the mirror, you don't want the souls to be trapped into the mirror. So yes. people covered it up so that way they can leave and everything. But yeah. the Velisca house is considered haunted. There has been there has been investigations there. Um, you can tour the place during the day and you can stay the night there as well. You can bring your sleeping bag and a pillow and stay the night. Yeah, I think uh, that was I, what, four hundred? 
I think so. Um, I know it's on, yeah, VallescaIowa.com. And I'll put that in the description below. So if you ever visit Iowa or if you're close in Iowa, you can go and check it out. And it's got a big sign saying Velisca Axe Murder House. It's a small house. It's a very small house. Looks like one portion actually has the two-story and the, the one-story. And then there's an addition where that would probably be like the living room area or the, or the kitchen and all that stuff. So looks like bedrooms are on kind of on one side. This this whole this case story, whatever, actually came up from my oldest daughter. I did, you know, she's actually big into true crime and cold cases, and uh, she's really, really into the the Myrtle's plantation. She says she's done three reports on that, just that. So wow, and so she, and she's visited it once. So uh, we actually plan to do the Myrtle's plantation, and I want to actually do it while we're there. Yes, um, but. She told me about the Velisca X murders. And I was like, I've never heard of that. So I looked it up, Googled it, and it the storyline behind it actually intrigued me enough to be like, you know, we're gonna put this on the podcast. Because there's a lot involved into it. There's a lot of theories that make sense, but it also it was a it was a spree of X murders during that time. So it very made it very interesting. And the fact that it's now a tourist attraction, just kind of like the Myrtle's plantation is, makes it even more extravagant. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think it'd be it'd be interesting to visit because I know that they haven't done any anything to it since it, you know, no. since the murder. That's why I said the gouges in the wall is still there. Are still uh, there? Yep. I think even some of the furniture, uh, mirrors, whatever. I think they're still covered up. I don't know. They could be, uh, but it's only open uh, from spring to fall. It closes during the winter time. I do know that reasonably because you can imagine the amount of snow. Right after, right after, yeah, right after Halloween, it closes for the winter season and it opens back up in the spring. I think around April time frame. I think that's a. I'd love to go ghost hunting there. <laughs> Not even, you know, you say ghost hunting. I think it's funny when people say ghost hunting. I don't know. I'm just weird because, like, you're saying you're hunting ghosts, but in all honesty. They're hunting you <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll haunt you as well. So it's funny. I like to hear, I like the ghost adventuring <laughs> or ghost exploring. It would be better. Ghost exploring. You're not I, hunting I, the, you're not hunting the ghost to catch it. No, you're hunting it. evidence of the ghost. You're, okay. It's still not hunting, but okay. <laughs> ghost investigating is what it really is. There you is. go. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll meet in the middle. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> oh guys we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Veleska axe murders and we want to let you know what we got coming up next after the hollow the halloween man here i'm still i'm still in the halloween spirit the thanksgiving holidays year round what we got coming up halloween spirit yes uh, very true very true <laughs> next we've got the uh the mizpah hotel is coming next let me see what we got after that uh I have a story about Mizpah Hotel. I know you do. <laughs> it's on our uh, TikTok page, by the way, in case anybody wants to go see part of it. At Feed Our Fear on TikTok. There you go. Um, so we've got, we're doing the Mizpah Hotel is next. That'll be out next week. And then we've got the Cold Valley Murders, which is oh, a local that's, one. Yeah, that's true. I For forgot me. about that one. Yep. And then we've got Ed Kipper. After that. Yep. Yep. If y'all don't know about Ed one, Kemper. 
Yeah, sorry. If you don't know. So he's a serial killer, of course, uh, but he wasn't like the popular ones that you hear of today. You know, like the Ted Bunny, the Jeffrey Dahmer, those kind. He he wasn't really put there, but he was featured. I say featured. He was shown on the Mindhunter show. And that's how I came to know about Ed Kipper. And yeah, he's a big dude. He was like six foot eight. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, he was a big guy. And he wasn't uh, like a skinny six foot eight. He was a very big guy. Big dude. Like, like probably close hotter. to probably close to like 300 pounds. Big guy. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, like uh, his, his, his uh, victims, he, he pinpointed like uh, girls from college, the co-ed colleges. That hmm. was his victims. But he, he also murdered his mom. And what he did with his mom, it, that one's going to be a really gruesome case episode because of the stuff that he did with his victims, body parts. Yeah. After he that'll be That would be an interesting one. Yes, it will be. So if uh, people who actually really like serial killers, you were fascinated about that, you know, the, tr- the psychology of the serial killer and stuff like that, you're going to be in for a treat on that one. Oh, yes. And then, of course, after that one, we've got Oatman for my Arizona people. Okay. Who know yep. it. Yep. And, yeah, that's what we've got coming up. <laughs> All right. We're going to try and squeeze those in before the Christmas holiday. And then we'll be taking a little break for Christmas and New Year's. And then we'll be back for the beginning of the year. Yep. So. Crazy. Real quick. We're on Facebook. We are on Instagram. And we are on TikTok and YouTube. And YouTube, All yes at uh, feed our fear and then if you would like to email us feed our fear at gmail.com uh, we are working on a website we'll eventually get that rolling uh, i do some actually horror gameplay on twitch if you'd like to head if you want to listen to him out. scream and jump while what while playing horror games go join us on twitch <laughs> i'll give you a quick little story uh i just started twitch not long ago it is under feed our fear because Feeder Fear Studios is basically the main umbrella of everything. But I started doing Twitch, what, last week? Yeah, pretty much. Or just Kinda, past week. Yeah. yeah, over the weekend. And, um, oh my gosh, the first, was it the first one? Yeah. I was doing uh, the Visage gameplay, which is a freaking awesome freaking game. It is. I, it's a psychological it really horror is. game. It's a long game. It's but it, it, it's hard too because you got to investigate. You've got to really like think and look for stuff. And I did not mean to do this, but I gamed for six hours straight on Twitch. That was a great night. <laughs> I I think I started like around nine something at night, and or I don't even know. And I ended close to four o'clock in the morning. It was over the weekend. Yep. And I cannot was- believe I did that. That was a great night. What was even better is the next episode where you figured out you could run. <laughs> it wasn't even the next one. It was the third one after that. Yeah. So how many hours into the game? Before I you was already you like run? 20 something hours into this <laughs> damn game. And I finally figured out, oh, let's look at the actual controller buttons on the game and see what. Oh, I can run. So I could have I could have dodged a lot of times of dying <laughs> to <killed>. run <laughs> i got killed so many times because I, I was i wasn't running but uh 
yeah, head over to Twitch. Uh, of course, you can you can see the 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 streams, the 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 past broadcasts. But right now, they're only up there for 14 days, and then they go away until we get further along. But um, I am taking the gameplays I do on Twitch, and I will put them on YouTube. So if you're into that kind of stuff, watching people gaming, especially horror games, go check it out. Steph is there. She's just there in the chat. Yeah. Out, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for now. But for now. We are signing off. We want to wish you all a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Eat Thanksgiving. Eat as much as you can. It is winter time. Put on your winter coats and munch down on all the good coma. food. Yes. I plan to. <laughs> big time. Happy Thanksgiving. And we'll see you next time from the Gasly Report. Take care. Later. Thank you for tuning in on the Gasly Report. And if you liked what you heard, please share this to all your friends and family. Trust me, it's not a crime to do it.